Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. Why GNOME? That's what I want to know. Why do the major distros ship GNOME? What got me thinking about this was that the vast majority of computer users in the world use Windows-like interface, whether that is indeed Windows or Chrome OS. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a hardcore Windows user, and he recently got a Steam Deck, and he's going to stick with it. And that got me thinking, hang on, the Steam Deck, that's one of the most successful Linux devices, and that runs KDE under the covers. And if you go to the desktop mode, it's a Windows-like desktop experience. Why do all the distros then ship GNOME? Well, the answer is usually accessibility. And it's like, okay, fair enough. GNOME is definitely the best for accessibility. But surely a company like Red Hat or Canonical could pay a few developers to sort out the accessibility situation on, say, Plasma or Mate or whatever. So why do most of the distros, the big ones at least, ship GNOME? I don't get it. I think it's mostly sloth. Canonical has before made their own desktop and made it accessible and paid all the developers to do all of that. And that was at a time when I guess computers were a little bit simpler, but also not really. So I think the Unity project existing and then ceasing to exist proves that one, this is possible, and two, no one wants to do it. Well, also, they took GNOME and made it more like Unity. They made it more Ubuntu-y. Yeah, certainly. I think what that means is just that they wanted to have something more similar to what users had before. They wanted to keep that same experience for them. I'm not sure if they would have actually done that if they had just gone with GNOME 3 from the beginning. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? There's value in consistency. We often exist in our bubble of desktop Linux, but there's a hell of a lot of vanilla Ubuntu users. My workplace, for example, there are computer labs with machines running Ubuntu because it helps to be running Linux as the base OS because you're interacting with Linux in an HPC environment and they're running Ubuntu. And people want to be able to go to the computer lab after an LTS upgrade and it look the same, I think. That helps. We don't actually support that setup directly, but there are people that have to. So consistency is key there. The people are employees or students or researchers using a service. That consistency is highly valued. So I can see why, why that's happening there. But when you start to dig a bit deeper, it's a thorny issue, isn't it? Let's take OpenSUSE, who doesn't get much of a mention on the show. That's split when it comes to desktop environments. If you think about Tumbleweed, it's often described as one of the best places to run Plasma. And Plasma is the primary desktop environment for Tumbleweed. But if you start looking at the immutable side of things that's starting to accelerate now, and they've just changed the names, so I, I can't remember what the names are, but it was micro OS. They now have sort of Keenwhite-type names. The Plasma version is openly pushed to one side. They've got difficulties with how it's packaged, but there was a blog post by the maintainer for the immutable version. And they're very much, we think GNOME is better. So we're, we're putting all of the development effort into that. And the Plasma release is labeled as alpha. So sometimes the direction is pushed from that side. We developed this, we've chosen this, and this is what we're developing. And they genuinely like it. It does help that GNOME and SystemD, which is required to really make the micro OS kind of stuff work well, are developed at the same place. So instead of being like 
KDE or XFCE or something where you're responding to changes that happen in systemd, it can be a little bit more proactive. Changes can be consulted between systemd and GNOME a little bit better than they can elsewhere. And then when you come to the Steam Deck situation, as far as I'm aware, there's no open statement from Valve about why that choice was made, but it is definitely a choice that has been made. And if you take a step back, we've discussed before when we were looking at touchscreen environments and distributions and desktop environments on Linux, I'm not a big fan of GNOME, but one of the things I will really praise it for is how well it runs on touch. And you would think because there is a touchscreen interface for the Steam Deck, that would be a huge positive. And they've still not chosen to go in that direction. And it just makes you wonder, I don't have benchmarks at my fingertips and things like that, but there must have been choices that were made. Well, my understanding is, and I don't own a Steam Deck, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, so there's the asterisks out of the way. But my <laughs> understanding is that it boots straight into something equivalent to big picture mode, like just into Steam by default. You can go into a desktop mode, but by default, it just goes into Steam. I think a lot of the users who are buying Steam Deck are probably just booting into that big picture-like mode and launching their games from there. I can't think that any of the non-desktop Linux users who are buying the Steam Deck are really going out of their way to get to the desktop and then install apps and all that kind of stuff. I think some people are because there are modding interfaces for the Steam Deck that require you to go into desktop mode and install them. They can be accessed from Steam after that, but you have to be in desktop mode first to get all the modification stuff, and then you start modding your Steam Deck. So I think people are going there. But they're going there to perform a specific task and then probably just continuing to launch their games, right? Like you install the mod, you probably don't fiddle with it too much after that. Or maybe I'm naive, don't play games. (laughs) (laughs) But that's an interesting point, Gary. Maybe what it is, is that one of the things I would not think of when I mentioned GNOME is adaptability. Now, obviously there are extensions for it and they're not always necessarily supported. You know, if you start raising issues the GNOME development team are going to say, well, you're you're wedging things in that aren't by design. And if you're trying to create an overlay interface for a games console, and you're not working with the desktop environment team directly, then perhaps that is an obvious choice. There's a certain adaptability inherent in Plasma that they needed to have to be able to do the things they wanted to do without throwing a bunch of extra code at it that is going directly against upstream. Dalton, you've got a Steam Deck. Presumably you have tried it in desktop mode at least once. Does it look like Windows in terms of the layout of it? Yeah, I suppose it's more like Windows with a taskbar and a bottom left button that gets you the rest of the things on the system. An actual desktop. Right. And so surely Valve did that because most people who play games use Windows are used to a Windows-like experience, and so they wanted to make the desktop experience a little bit like Windows, at least from a sort of UX point of view. It's not going to be Windows, but just that basic idea, taskbar on the bottom, menu in the bottom left, clock on the bottom right. Is it that simple? That's why they chose Plasma, because that's really, really easy to do with Plasma. Potentially. That is a simple answer. Especially since I don't think, someone will have to correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that by default when you're booting into the big picture mode, you're actually booting Quinn, the window manager of KDE. 
I'm pretty sure it's GameScope that is a dedicated Wayland window manager for just full screen stuff. I don't think KDE is actually loaded. So do you have to launch KWIN to get the desktop mode then? When you go to desktop mode, Steam shuts down and you log back into the system under KDE. Uh, <laughs> you go back to your display manager and it logs you back in kind of thing. With a different session, right, that makes sense. It's interesting, Joe, that you mention the jumping off point for this conversation because I have an exact parallel story to you. I have a friend who is a long-term Windows user, has never run desktop Linux, and he has also bought a Steam Deck and he's using it with the default setup. He has gone into desktop mode, but I expected the odd question. I think I introduced flat packs to him because he was like, oh, I'm trying out the desktop mode with my USB-C dock. How do I get applications? What do you recommend? And I explained about the immutability and, and things like that. But largely, that's its great success. We speculated a long time ago when it was first announced but not released. Perhaps there'd be a lot of people that put Windows on it, but we hoped not. And I really don't think that has happened. No. And I think that's part of it, isn't it? As you say, when you fall back to the desktop mode, there's a certain level of familiarity. Yeah, it's roughly similar to Windows. It's not the same, but it's not totally alien. And it makes me wonder, do Linux distros ship GNOME 3? And did GNOME 3 come about because Linux wanted to be different? The developers said to themselves, I don't want to just be copying Windows. I want to be better than Windows. I want to do something different. It's interesting, isn't it? As a straw poll with the four of us, I always have my taskbar on the bottom, and I'm presuming that the three of you do as well. Yeah, unless I'm using GNOME. I mean, I use GNOME. So. Oh. <laughs> Actually, no. I install Dash to Dock and put it on the bottom. <laughs> what about when you use XFCE, Gary? If I use XFCE, then yeah, it's on the bottom like a Windows machine. When I use GNOME, it's on the left like it was in Unity. Oh. If I use the Mac, it's on the bottom because that's where it belongs. That's the only place you're allowed to put it. I've never even tried on a Mac. Can you not put it on the sides? Yeah, yeah, you can put the dock on the left and right. My mind has just been blown. <laughs> <laughs> you can move the dock. So my slightly alternative theory here is that are all distros shipping GNOME because all distros ship GNOME, like as in all of the other ones do. And as such, that's where a lot of the development happens first. So things like Wayland arguably is probably ready, don't shoot me yet, first on GNOME. I mean, when I daily drive a Linux machine, it's running GNOME with Wayland, and broadly I don't see any issues. But I seem to see people with other desktops having a lot more issues with Wayland, or indeed with their X session, than I do when I'm on a GNOME machine. And I'm wondering if maybe it's because a lot of the development happens there first, and a lot of the new shiny stuff is stable in GNOME first. And for example, Zoom only works under GNOME because everyone ships GNOME, so it becomes self-perpetuating. Yeah, it seems to have just become the standard place to target your application or to target new features for the Linux desktop. Not saying it's right, but it does seem like that's maybe the case. You're saying it's momentum? Yeah. Inertia? Yeah, exactly. Like If you've got one place to target, things are going to move a lot quicker. That's something that both Microsoft and Apple have started pushing a lot harder. Also, you have to look at history. Obviously, GNOME 3 was unpopular, and there were two forks of GNOME 2, one of which is very close to my heart and one of which is very close to many other people's hearts. But it's not like everyone flocked over to them and GNOME 3 just fell apart. 
it continued that momentum through that period, through the unity period. So it obviously does have the weight of momentum behind it, Joe, as you say. And people who actually like it, who keep pushing it, not just, it, it isn't just because it's already there, it's because people still want it to be there. Yeah, and I think the kind of people who love it, love it because it's different, because it's better. It's a better, more modern paradigm, they would say to you. And I've no reason to doubt that. I think that it is a more modern paradigm. But when billions of people out there are using a 30-plus-year-old paradigm, maybe we should be appealing to them. I don't know. This goes against my Linux elitism, though. Maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should just say, nah. Let's just do our own thing that's totally different. And if new people come along and don't like it, that's their problem, not ours. Well, that sort of fits with what Apple have done with macOS all these years. And there's certainly been a real resurgence in the last five to 10 years in people buying Macs, right? It's not the same paradigm as anything else at all. And yet broadly, the average user or the average developer doesn't care. They just want a desktop where they can open a browser, they can open a text editor, they can open a terminal and just get on with their work and have it get out of the way. And macOS does that pretty well, and as does GNOME. But you still have to buy Magnet. Yeah, I mean, or you have to use one of the many other ones. But yeah, you need something to do window snapping. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy fun and affordable. A busy schedule can make it easy to fall into your dinnertime recipe rut. Keep mealtimes exciting with over 40 recipes to choose from every week, so there's always something delicious to discover with HelloFresh. Turn to HelloFresh Market for delicious add-ons and enjoy the season's limited fall flavours lineup. Feast on desserts like apple cider cake with caramel sauce, or please a crowd with appetisers like the barbecue pulled pork nachos. And don't forget the mini pumpkin cheesecake if you fancy a little treat. Dalton tried HelloFresh and said having all the ingredients together and correctly portioned was super convenient and the great meal selection made it tons of fun to try out new ingredients and techniques. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 50 Linux After Dark and use code 50 Linux After Dark for 50% off plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash 50 Linux After Dark and code 50 Linux After Dark for 50% off plus free shipping. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxafterdark.net slash support. And for either 5 or $10 a month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the late-night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. Let's do some feedback then. Richard got in touch regarding the episode we did about threats to end-to-end encryption from governments, and he made several points. Meta disabled news in Canada because of some Canadian law designed to protect Canada's news outlets. Meta wouldn't re-enable it to help Canadians to get news during the wildfires, which their PM pleaded with them to do. Well, Meta in being shower of bastard shocker <laughs> is what I can say there. Uh, he says Signal would never disable encryption. It's against their reason for existing. They're an org, not a company, trying to make money. Instead, they'll ask people to use the feature which enables Signal to bypass censorship and blocking. It's a feature on the app under Advanced and makes it work where it's supposedly blocked, like Iran. Now, I did not know this. Did any of you know that 
there are ways nope. to bypass blocks. Telegram does do something similar. It needed to start doing that after Russia, you know, started doing its thing. But yeah, interesting that Signal does the same. I feel like we should probably use Signal instead of Telegram, you know. I think you're right. Why don't we? I think probably it comes down to you have to have a phone number and you have to share the phone number for Signal, don't you? Ah, yeah. Whereas you can just have an at name on Telegram. Do you still have to? I think you might be able to do at names on Signal now. But even more than that, probably because Telegram was used by the Ubuntu community and that's where we all came from. And so we just kept it. Right. Telegram occupies a box in my head as the Linux app. I don't message any (laughs) personal contacts on it. I only open it to look at group chats about Linux, actually. So that's why I use it. It's because there's some large groups. And I said the other day with the the death of search engines and Reddit, it's one of the few places to go where bullshit still gets called out by people I trust. Mm. So that's where the people are and they're just not on Signal. That's why I'm not using it in that sense. Also, Signal doesn't have a good desktop app. Do they have a web dot like Telegram? No, I don't think so. No, not at all. All right, it's totally dead to me then. Just to say, I've gone to my phone out of curiosity, and to actually get there, you have to go into privacy and then advance. It's grayed out for me. Censorship circumvention is not necessary. You are already connected to the signal service. So it must detect when you're in Iran in places like that, and that will become available to turn on. Ah, interesting. What do you know? Richard goes on, your concern over open source code becoming censored sounds like the project could host their repo on Tor or some other darknet. And due to the nature of Tor and others being designed to evade and bypass protections, I don't see how the UK or others could block darknet protocols. We did kind of allude to that, didn't we, in the episode? Life uh, finds a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the average person is not going to work out Tor. It's the bottom line. Not there's much to work out. You just download the thing and run it. But just the concept of it, I think, is beyond most people's comprehension. Most people who don't understand what a file system is, for example. Yeah. Or care. I think the concept of using a different messaging app is beyond some people's comprehension or certainly is something they don't want to do. Like we recently had a group chat work that we decided to move to Signal for various reasons. And there's about six of us. And there were definitely people who were reluctant to have to install another messaging app. Yeah. Interestingly, though, I have met people who you wouldn't consider to be very tech savvy at all, who were very skilled at using Tor to buy drugs, basically. (laughs) They weren't initially, and they weren't self-taught or an autodidact in learning how Tor worked. It's just they'd taken drugs with someone and they'd said, where did you get these drugs? And they're like, I I got them on the dark web. And they're like, oh, can you show me how that works? So they were using it, probably not fully understanding it. And the interesting thing about Tor is, Attempts to monitor that are interesting. And if you're unlucky enough to go through an exit node that's being monitored for some other reason and get caught in the crossfire, then that could happen. But generally, people are looking to sit on exit nodes or set up exit nodes to try and get people at the other end. And obviously, by the nature of it, it's going to be hopping across. Yeah, but that's going to be targeted. It's not exactly. people looking to buy a bit of weed or whatever. They don't care about that. Yeah, Exactly. That's my point. If you were to get caught in the crossfire, that would be a a severely unhappy accident. They are targeting people when they're monitoring exit nodes or setting up honeypot exit nodes. But to Richard's point about hosting a repo on tour, the idea that the authorities can stay 
on top of communication like that is just look at what's happening. As we record this, there's a party conference for the ruling party of this country. Even if they tried to do anything as sophisticated as that, they just aren't going to fucking do it. They can't even build a railway line from one corner of a road to a fucking another. So they're not <laughs> going to be dealing with sophisticated dark web encryption protocols and onion-rooted traffic. It is encouraging, though, that when needs must, people do work out the tech. Someone who's not tech-savvy working out tour because they wanted to buy weed or whatever it was they were buying, that gives me hope that if things do get really shut down, people will just work it out. Because humans are pretty clever beasts and are capable of learning things when they have to. It's just that most people don't want to. But if you force them to, they will work it out. Hmm. Have you ever watched, listened, read, played any of the cyberpunk style things? What, as in 2077? 2077 is one, but it's this whole series and genre of cyber dystopia. That's basically what you're describing? Deus Ex. Yeah. The video game. Deus Ex 2, yeah. One of my favorite video games of all time. If you go back and, and look at that, it's dated, but some of the things in there are incredibly prescient. It's kind of a place where reality mirrors fiction, that people in those worlds did get driven to the point of desperation, and they found out how to get what they wanted. Well, this is the great thing. If you, if you speak to artistic and creative people, a thing I've often heard is people tend to create some of the best work under the most constrained circumstances. If you think about an independent film where they have very limited budget and they have to be very creative... And it's really successful and brilliant because they operated within those limitations. They get loads of money to make a sequel and regularly it's pants. <laughs> I feel like it's the same thing. If people are constrained into a certain place and have to think laterally, often that's when the most interesting stuff occurs. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later. <laughs>